The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So now Luke chapter 21 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 21. And the text, and I'll let you stay seated on this one. The text says this, Luke 21 verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all that she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. So what do we do with this? Anybody heard this text before? Anybody ever heard a sermon or a Bible study on this text before? Raise your hand nice and high, right? I'm guessing this text, when you've heard it before, was probably taught or approached the same way that I thought I was going to be approaching it when I approached it, and the same way that I've usually heard it most of my life, and that is this text is clearly about giving. Clearly, that's what it is. But I don't know about that so much. Um, here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, um, we, we tend to employ, uh, most days, um, an, an approach to biblical interpretation here that's really specific. It's, it's referred to as the historical grammatical approach. And so this is what that means. It means whenever someone's coming to the scriptures and they're using the historical grammatical approach to scripture, we look at this in a very specific way and we start out like this. We say, this is a true story. And it is a true story. Give me an amen if you believe me on that. This is a true story? Amen. It's a true story. This actually took place in real time and in real history. This widow wasn't a fictitious person. She was a real person who existed in human history. Um, The people that were there, the rich people that were giving Jesus, his disciples, all of this is real and took place in real time, in a real context, in a real location. And so when we're approaching the scriptures, we also understand that these accounts were written by real people. In this particular case, uh, uh, conveniently enough, in the book of Luke, it was written by a man named Luke. It was written by Luke. Yes, gold star upon all of your chests. And so Luke wrote this text and he wrote it for a reason. There's a purpose behind what he's doing as he's writing these accounts. We know from our study in Luke chapter 1 that he's sending all of this to a man named Theophilus. And he wants this man, Theophilus, to know the reality of all of these things that happened. And that's his whole purpose. He's like, I want you to understand what happened. I want you to know how dependable it is, how real it is, how true it is. And so he's putting this whole account together. And as he does so, inspired by the very Spirit of God, the the Word of God is is prompting him, leading him to write the things that he's writing. And so Luke, at some point in history, was sitting down with a pen, and he literally wrote down the four verses that we just read. And so a historical grammatical approach to Scripture wants to approach it, understanding those things, and to say, okay, these were real people in real history. It was written by a real person. So let's understand these four verses in the context of the time that it was written. Understand it through the eyes, you might say, of the people that it was written to. Understand it, if you will, through the pen of the author that was writing it. Let's make sure that we do everything we can to understand everything in its context because it was written in a real time. And then 
We want to pull application or understanding out of that context. So we start by kind of looking at it and really spending time saying, hey, what's going on here? Not just taking a verse randomly and saying, we'll use this to teach this or we'll use this to teach this, but because you can do that with all sorts of things, but to say, no, what's really going on right here in the great context of not only what Luke's writing, but everything that's happening historically in that exact moment. That's what we want to do. So that being said, here's the thing about this story. I don't know for sure that it's about giving, especially primarily. I don't think that's exactly what this is. Now, we, we could do it, and it's been done to death, and I've probably taught it that way. We could start a building campaign. We could pull out a thermometer. You church people have seen the thermometers, right? We could build a thermometer and we could start a church campaign and we could use texts like this and talk about giving and sacrifice and all of that kind of stuff. We could totally do that. And the odds are, if I taught it from that perspective, as long as I didn't do it in a way that was either bullying you or something like that, you probably wouldn't bat an eye to it. You'd probably go, yeah, it seems like it's about giving and we should give. And I mean, there was a thermometer on the stage. What else are we supposed to think? So like, let's just do that, right? We could probably do that. But let's think first about what's happening in these verses. Like, let's start with just the four verses. What's happening in this verse? Well, they're in the temple. And the temple in that day is created with layers, you might say. They're referred to as the courts. There's different courts. And depending on who you are and and how your position in life was esteemed in the eyes of everyone, especially the religious elite and those who who built that area, that, that sort of determined where you could and couldn't go. So if you were only a Gentile person, which just means you're non-Jewish, you're a foreigner to those people in that day, you had a courtroom you could go into, a court I should say, but you you couldn't go beyond that. You couldn't get any closer to the center, if you will, of the temple. And in the center of the temple, there was a room that's referred to as the Holy of Holies, everyone mumbled. So the Holy of Holies is the place where the Spirit of God, the presence of God rested there, the Ark of the Covenant's there, there's some other things there. In that room, only one guy can go. The high priest can go there one time per year. And so if you looked at the temple as having layers, you might say, the farther out you go, the more restrictive the courtrooms are, or the courtyards, I should say, are. And so there's a a courtyard for the Gentiles. There's another courtyard where women can go this far, but no further. Then there's another area where Jewish men can go, but no further. And it just gets more and more, you might say, elite or specialized, depending on your perspective, the closer that you go to the middle. Even to this day, if you go to Israel, the wailing wall of the temple on the outside is now, since the temple doesn't exist at this moment, that's where people now go and gather to pray. And even there, trying to honor the historical topography the his, or the historical architecture of the temple, they even have that separated into a courtyard where women can come and another area where only men are allowed to go in and pray. This is pretty common, and it was normal in that day. This is just sort of what they did, right? And so I find it interesting, though, that the place where you give was still in the place where the women could still get to. That seems convenient. Like, we need them to still be able to give, so let's put the tithe box where more people can reach it. That 
pragmatism, I guess. I find that interesting, especially in light of the text today. But here we have this place where the temple treasury would make collections. And so collections, tithes, gifts would be given for different reasons in the temple. But one of the reasons was, if you were part of the tribe of Levi, whose job it was to run the temple and all these sorts of things, they were the only people in the nation of Israel that weren't really given their own land or their own inheritance. But They were to be provided for, and the temple and its care and upkeep was to be provided for through giving that comes through other people. So in the courtyard, there's this tithe basket, if you will, where everyone can come and give. Whatever it was they were actually putting the money into, there was the place to give, and and the money that was collected there um, would support the life of the priests and the priesthood. It would support the temple upkeep. It would support all of that sort of stuff, right? And so these people are coming and giving, and Jesus is there, and he's watching them. And he sees some wealthy people coming in, and the wealthy people are coming in, and they're giving, and Jesus is noticing, like, they're giving. It, it doesn't really hurt them so much. They're wealthy people, which kind of makes sense. You know, it's not that big a deal for them. It's not painful for them to afford to give. They have a lot of money. But hey, look, there's this lady. And he points out this one widow, and he says about her, he says, see, this woman... And he he knows some things about her. She's poor, which dress alone would probably give that away. She's poor. She's a widow. He knows that she's alone. And and, and then he knows that she's giving this small, small amount. She's just got these couple of coins. uh, At least according to my Bible, says that it was about the equivalent of one 128th of a day's wage. So if you made $128 a day, She's given a dollar. That's what she's given. So it's a, a very, very, it's a, and it's intended even in the text for us to understand. This is a very, very small, almost inconsequential, tiny amount of money that's been given. In the scale of the temple or the rich people that are giving or any of that kind of stuff, and Herod's temple was a pretty grand place. In the grand scale of all of that, this isn't really going to do anything. But to her, it was significant. It's, it's hurting her. In fact, he literally says, you see in verse 4, she, they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in what? All she had to live on. Like, this is her rent. Like, this is her power bills. This is her grocery money. This is her rent. She gives all she has to live on. And now is walking away with nothing. That's what's happened in its immediate context. That's what's there. Now, let's consider this, how this text has been sadly used before. It's a guy on TV. Somehow these kind of preachers always end up on TV. I don't know. And they're referred to as prosperity theologians. And I should warn you, uh, I might be slightly fired up about this particular topic today because I watched an amazing documentary that you guys should look into on iTunes or Amazon. It's called The American Gospel. It's super good, but we'll do a movie night later on and show it to everybody as well if you don't want to rent it. So I'm really a little fired up, but God's sovereign, he knew. So here we are. But you get this guy on TV, this prosperity theologian, just looking all snazzy, wearing super nice clothes. And he'll say things like, We just read this text, southern accents often too, by the way. We just read this text and hey, somewhere out there, someone out there is poor too. Maybe even a widow. 
And you're thinking you can't give to the Lord's work because you won't be able to pay your bills afterwards. But I'm here to tell you, let's look at the faith of this woman. And then they'll follow it up with a testimony, right? I remember one from when I was young. Um, There was a company, I won't say their name because I don't want to throw them under the bus in any way, shape, or form. But I remember hearing a testimony still to this day from when I was young in a teaching similar to this, maybe not as uh, sketchy, but still the same message. And he, he said that there was this one guy who had this company and they were struggling, they were near bankruptcy and the guy didn't know what to do. He didn't have that much money and so he just was like, well, I'm going bankrupt anyway. I might as well still give to the Lord the way I'm supposed to. I might as well give to the Lord. So he, he gave his 10% even though he couldn't afford it and then somehow the bills got paid and as time went on, things started to turn. And the money started to change, and suddenly they were making more money. So he was like, man, I can actually afford to give a little more. So he started giving 20%. And man, the profits just kept going. The profits just kept going. 30%, 40%. And according to this story, I don't remember what the exact number was, but this guy was given a huge percentage of what was coming in. And as he kept giving, man, the Lord just kept offering him, and the money just kept rolling in. So listen up, widow. You should give too. In fact... The reason you're poor is probably because you're not giving. You need to exercise your faith and show God dependence and this is what you're supposed to do. That gets taught from these four verses all the time. All the time. This week, I'm going to get what I still consider the privilege of having to deal with some of that. Um, I'm, weather permitting in Seattle, uh, leaving on Tuesday morning with a group of nine other people from our church, all first-timers, which is super cool and exciting for me, and we're leaving and we're going to Uganda on Tuesday. And so while we're there, and I want to encourage you guys to pray for us, first of all, please pray this whole weather in Seattle stuff. We need, we really need to make this connection because some of the people, you want to put the picture up of the, the team that's going, uh, Aaron Havivian, or not Aaron Havivian, sorry, Aaron Beamish was gone this day, so he's not in the picture, but Aaron Beamish will be with us as well. Um, this is the team that we're all going, and a few of them have already taken off, and they're flying over and going to meet us in Amsterdam, and they're just trying to break up some of the travel so they don't have to do that giant, insane, crazy long flight all at once. Um, but here's why suddenly that's a big deal. If the snow projected on Monday night cancels our flight on Tuesday, the rest of our team doesn't get to Amsterdam, which means we don't get to connect with those guys, which means those guys who have never been to Africa and have never met Pastor John are flying to Uganda by themselves. So I really need to get to Seattle and get out of Seattle Tuesday morning. So please pray for that if you guys would. Um, But this is the team. And so while we're in Uganda, we have a couple of different things that we're going to do. The first thing that we're going to do while we're there is relational. Um, For those of you that don't know, we have now about an 11-year history with this specific church in Uganda, Oasis of Hope Church and Pastor John Wabwire there. And a lot of what we're doing is just relational, just loving each other, worshiping with each other, um, fellowshipping with each other, eating meals with one another, and just spending time together. And it's really important to them. So much so that they would say and have regularly said, Um, Hey, if it was the difference between the church cutting us a check for however many thousand dollars it costs your trip, or we don't get any money, but you guys still come, we'd rather have you come visit. Like that's how important it is to them over there. So the relational part's a big deal. The second thing we're going to do while we're over there is we're going to be working on doing some research to try to build a a more significant um, orphan education support program. 
Uh, right now, we as a church support, I don't know, 12 or 14, I can't remember what the exact number is right now, but, but uh, underprivileged kids in Uganda to go to schools. But there's lots more that, that could use the help. And even what we do, like this one goes to this school and this one goes to this school, and they're sort of scattered all over. And I've kind of been looking at it like, man, instead of just the church writing some blank check, or not blank check, but just solid check to say, we're going to cover these kids, we could probably cover a whole lot more if we rearranged it and we set some standards, got it kind of standardized monetary-wise, figured out what kids are eligible, what kids aren't, find other kids that could use our help, and then build, if you guys are familiar with like compassion or something like that, build sort of a support system there where, where you guys could pick a specific child and support them through their school and education, which costs almost nothing. Um, there's a kid that, that my family personally supports that has, it's separate from Oasis of Hope there that we got connected with through this really, really cool opportunity. Um, I think we pay his school tuition three times a year and each time we have to send money to pay for it, it's $40. Like that's nothing. And compassion's 40 bucks a month, I think. So I'm like, man, we could do so much more if we actually just get organized, which is kind of the story of my life. So, so we're going to work on that. Um, even if the better solution means actually hiring a teacher and just doing a school right there in the church in, in Barara. So we, some of them are going to be spending time there, going to the government offices, trying to figure out uh, maybe the best option for us to be able to care for orphans while we're over there. And then the third thing that we're going to be doing over there, which we do every single time that we go, is pastoral training. Um, and I'm excited about it this time because, um, the, as I told you guys in the fall when I went, we're now doing this through and in conjunction with several other churches through the Acts 29 network. And um, the, the sponsorship, or excuse me, not that, the, the ongoing education program that Acts 29 is doing for Pastor John in Uganda and for several other pastors um, is just awesome. In fact, Acts 29 flew him and some other pastors to, or drove him, I don't know how he got there, but whatever it was, to Nairobi for last week, and they were spending time together in Nairobi. Our church didn't even, um, we didn't send a dime to cover that. They just pulled him in, and Pastor John got to study with a group of other guys for a week in, in Nairobi, and it was just, it's really cool what's happening. And so my job is to go there this time, or our job, I should say, and the topic they want us to cover with all these pastors, because all these other guys that were in Nairobi are now going to be coming to Embarara, where we're going to be. And so we get them for a couple of days there, and we're supposed to teach on gospel centrality. So what is the gospel? What isn't the gospel? How does the gospel affect ministry? How does the gospel affect evangelism? All of these kind of things. And you go, well, that seems really, really easy. It's super hard in Uganda. Because there's a garbage gospel that is constantly landing in Uganda that comes from America. And it's that prosperity theology. And I'm telling you, it is the worst of the worst. There are so many people that we run into while we're over there. So many stories we hear where people go over into Uganda and they talk about this faith stuff. And so an American guy or wherever he's from, will go into Uganda and they'll come by the thousands because it's this rich white American with a fancy show. And they'll talk about how you guys in your poverty, you don't have to be like this anymore. You need to have faith because God saved you that you might have an abundant life, not an empty life. So what you need to do is grow in your faith. And you know how you grow in your faith, right? You give money. And so they'll say, give more. And they use phrases like, you need to sow seeds of faith now so that you reap a harvest later. 
And it happens all the time in Uganda. It is unbelievable. And, and it, it, it leaves behind such devastation. It increases their poverty. When we who are rich should be going over there and giving of ourselves to them, instead, you've got people coming from here to take from them, and instead of helping them, they're increasing their poverty level. It's an absolute horrific thing that's happening over there. And I'm telling you guys that, that the vast majority of the teaching and the training they get over there, and I mean the vast majority, is Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen, Creflo, Donner, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, all those guys. That's all that's on TV over there. Most of them don't have access to books, so that's all they get. And they watch all that, and in their minds and in their assumptions, we are all the same which in case you're not sure, we are not the same. We are not the same. And so we go over there and we have to deal with undoing things that get done over there in the name of Christianity. And it's not just over there. The, the fact that right now Evangel Christian Bookstore has Benny Hinn books on the shelves is an absolute abomination. And this stuff is everywhere. It's everywhere. And so people will take things like this. And you go, Jeff, man, aren't you being harsh? Absolutely not. Listen, that theology is the exact same mentality, the same spirit, the same, I will say, demonic spirit that Jesus just kicked out of the temple in the biblical account. That is taking people who are supposed to be coming for redemption, for healing, to be reunited with God and redeemed by God. And, and instead what it's doing is it's separating people from them. And this is what Jesus just cleansed right out of the temple. And so now we have to go over there and we undo this stuff. And this is the kind of teaching that happens all the time. You go, man, that's just still, that's still just an ab abuse though, right? This could still be about giving, right, Jeff? Couldn't it be? Well, I mean, it could be. Because here's the kind of the classic approach. They would take this text and they would say, this woman is to be honored because even though she had nothing, she gave. And that's an expression of faith. That's the model that we should actually follow. So that's what we should tell everybody else. Look, this gal, as poor as she is, she gave. So even you who are here, though you may be in this room and poor, you might be struggling not knowing how you're going to pay your bills. And instead of us in the church coming alongside you and trying to find ways to support you, instead what you really need to do is just give us your money and watch and see if God maybe works it out. This is not the Bible. How many times in Scripture is it over and over talking about how those who have stand up for those who haven't? I mean, the very gospel itself is that he who is rich became poor that we might inherit eternal life. And so the prosperity theology, the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. And so... You go, well, it's still about giving. That's just too much. You could back off a little bit. You can say, hey, she gave in such a way that demonstrated her faith in Jesus. Because what she gave required faith and required dependence on him in such a way that the rich didn't. And so her example is one of good faith. And the example of the rich is one of poor faith. And they're not doing that. But here's the thing, though, about this. When, when you go through the text and you read, you're going to find that like, over and over and over in the text, when there's, when there's a, a good example and a bad example, and Jesus wants us to follow the good example, he kind of just says so. And he'll say things like, no, the kingdom of God is like this. Do this. 
And, and this is what you don't want to do. And he'll usually use, this, use phrases like the other one, and, you know, things like that. And he'll say, there's, there's this, but no, do this. But, but the one thing that's actually noticeable in this particular text is, did you notice there's not actually any rebuke for the wealthy in this? It's not there. He doesn't say, and these, now there's a, there's a contrast for sure, but there's not a rebuke that's saying they did wrong and she did right, so we should do what she did. That's not actually there. What he, he just says is they're giving out of an abundance. They, they have a whole lot. She's giving um, out of everything that she has. This is going to hurt her, and she's leaving now actually broke. And he makes this observation. You know, where are you going with this, Jeff? Well, let's consider the greater context for just a second. You've heard through our teachings before, though I'm going to recap really quickly in just a second, what happens before this. But let's look and consider what does Jesus say immediately after this? Verse 5, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things you see, the days will come when there will not be anything left here, not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they said to him, teacher, when will these things take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. And he goes on and on into the text that you're going to be studying next week. This is funny. My phone's in my pocket because our announcements were on it. And I'm like, who keeps calling me? They should know that I'm in church. And I look, it's Uganda. (laughs) So we'll give them grace. So here's what he says. People are talking about the temple. This temple's so beautiful. Look at the decorations. It's so nice. It's so fancy. It's so amazing. And Jesus is like, not one stone here is going to stand on top of one another. So think about this. See this. Jesus is headed to the cross. And he comes into the city riding on a donkey, a sign that they should have seen, that should have pointed out who he is so that they would know this is the Messiah we've been waiting for, and the vast majority don't. And remember what happens, even the religious leaders are like, stop all of this, and he's like, no way. And then Jesus ends up looking over the city, and what's he doing? He's weeping over the city. Why? Because he says, if you had just known, but you're going to hurt. There's destruction coming, and there's pain coming. And there's difficulty coming, the kind of thing I could have saved you from, but, but you missed me because you're looking for other things. And he's heartbroken for their pain. And then what does he do? He goes into the temple and he finds a market that's taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of the weak, interfering with worship, coming between people who are trying to be reconciled with God. And he cleanses the temple and he drives them out. And so because of that, his authority gets challenged. And so he begins to rebuke them, doesn't give them the answers that they want. And then what does he do? He silences them with teachings about the resurrection. He goes into a teaching that tells them, hey, listen, there's an account coming. You've been entrusted with things that were the Father's. And one day, the Father is coming again, and you're going to have to give account. And for those of you that have failed to steward well what has been given to you, you are going to pay. There's going to be pain, weeping, darkness, gnashing of teeth, death. And then what does he do? He calls them out for their outward appearances. He's, look at these guys. They have these robes and they're like trying to look so holy and everyone thinks they're so amazing. Don't be like them. And in that text, what does he actually even say? He says, these people devour widows. 
Super important to understand that. He watches that and he says, right there, it's in chapter 20, verse uh, 47, who devour widows' houses. And then he turns around right there in the temple and here's a widow giving her rent money. He's seeing it happen right there. And he's hearing people around them while she's losing her house. People are looking at this, this, the Lord's house, if you will, and they're like, oh, but it's so nice. It's so fancy. And Jesus says, I am going to burn this place to the ground. And that's the context of the story. Now, do you think really, in the middle of all that, Jesus is going, but make sure you give. Is that the point? Like, what do you say? I'm seeing all this go and it's all going to be destroyed. So make sure you write your tithe checks this week because next week you don't really know. That's not, that can't be what he's saying here. That can't be the context of the passage. So you go, okay, so what do we do with it? Well, we could say she gave all she had, Jesus gave all he had, so we should give all we have. We could do that. And we could make a Christian message out of that. We could. Um, we could say, this is what real trust in Jesus looks like. And we could make a real Christian story about that. To say that she gave in such a way that she had to trust in Jesus. And maybe others didn't. We, we could do that. Better still, though, we, we could compare economies for sure. I mean, the contrast is obviously there. And, and it comes right on the heels of Jesus saying, see how people look at these guys and they're like, man, that is the holy person right there. Look at them. They've got these long robes. They give. They make these long prayers. Listen to how they pray. It's so eloquent. It's so amazing. And Jesus is saying, man, uh, your economy is not like the Lord's. Just like in the story of David, man looks at the heart. Uh, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And, and we, could, we could really talk about this, and there's, there's a, a real place for that. Say that, like, in our world, in our economy, just like the people of Uganda, as they're trying to understand all the teaching that's coming over from America, they're looking at it, and they're going, well, I mean, he's got a huge church. They meet in a basketball arena with 25,000 people every week. He must know what he's talking about. It's awfully impressive. But the economy of God doesn't look at that in the same way. The economy of God looks at a woman who's giving what the rest of the world would consider completely insignificant and honors that and says, that's impressive. That's a big deal. Man, look what she's doing. And we could talk about that, man. In God's kingdom, the big are small and it's the small who are big. Over and over in scripture, God is elevating or exalting the lowly. He's choosing the weakest and smallest nation. He's choosing the smallest son to be his king. He's choosing the outcast to be his disciples over and over and over. And if we need modern day examples, he's chose me to be one of his sons. So the analogy continues, right? The weak are strong in God and he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And there is an absolute and super applicable teaching to take out of there about the economies. But this morning, before I cut you guys loose, I just want to ask you to consider one more. In the grand scheme of everything that's taking place, maybe a good thing for us to add into all that is to think about this. Sin has great, great costs and a lot of collateral damage. He's watching this woman give everything she has into a system she thinks will save her. 
into a religious system that she thinks will support her, will somehow provide for her, will, will save her, and she knows the exact opposite actually exists. And he has warned the Pharisees and the religious leaders over and over and over and over. And how many times have they had opportunity to repent, to confess of their sins, and now they're not going to do it. The time is done. Jesus has declared this is now what's going to happen. And so many people are going to hurt, including this woman. And so maybe for us, we should stop and consider in addition to the other things that we could talk about in this text that are clearly biblical and, and important, maybe moral lessons for us to understand, maybe we want to com- just take a minute to pause and stop and think about the fact that, you know what, sin has a massive cost, and it costs more than just us. Like, we, we don't sin in a vacuum, and the cost is high. And maybe there's things that the Lord, I know, I know he's convicted me. Maybe there's things the Lord would even, has been tapping on some of your hearts and just saying, hey, hey there's, there's a thing in your life, man. There's a thing going on in your life, Jeff, that you need to deal with. We need to deal with this. Can, I, can we talk about this? Can, we, can you deal with this? And you know what, Jeff, you need to deal with this. You need to deal with this. And we just over and over and over just keep going, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. In fact, I'm gonna be just fine, man. I go to church every week and I give and I do all these kinds of things. I'm gonna be fine. But maybe there's this thing in our heart that he's like, Jeff, Please pay attention. This is going to be painful. This is going to hurt. And it might even hurt people more than you. Please listen, 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 listen. But here's the good news. What's amazing out of this story? He went to the cross anyway. That should have totally got an amen just now. Let me try that again. <clears throat> he went to the cross anyway. Think about that. Even as he's saying this is going away. This is just, this will not stand anymore. Quite literally, he's still going to the cross, knowing that the very people that he's calling out for their sin are about to kill him. And he did it anyway, which provides now access for us to be able to go before the Father and say, who am I even to get too fired up about this guy or this guy or this guy or this guy when God's talking to my own heart and God's speaking into my own life. But to, to know that we're going before a God that loves us so much that even in spite of our hard-headedness and rebellion, he went to the cross and died for our sins that we might find the forgiveness that we so desperately need. Jesus is so, so good. Like, he's good. And I just pray that we wouldn't just take that for granted. I pray for my own life and our own life and our church's life that we wouldn't just ignore the promptings of the Spirit that are saying, hey, something's wrong here. Hey, something's wrong here. Hey, something's wrong here. And I pray that instead we would be willing to put our trust in the one who gave his life for us. And that it would be the love of God for what he has done that would then birth ministry out of it that we how could we not go help the poor widow when we realized how Jesus died and saved spiritually bankrupt Jeff 
How can we not go to Uganda and help those who have nothing when God has blessed our church in so many incredible and powerful ways? How can we not go and do that? But all of that based out of an understanding that we are a broken, wicked, sinful people who have found immeasurable grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven of much, and it is right that we put our trust in Him. Amen, church? So will you stand and bow your heads with me, and let's pray for a second. Is it really only 1134? Oh, we're about to freak out our kids' ministry. Let's pray. Right now, I just want to give us a couple of minutes just to go before the Lord even right now ourselves. What a terrifying testimony to see how over and over and over there was warning given and sign given and opportunity after opportunity for repentance that was never taken advantage of. And this morning, even braving the snow to come in, God has led us to yet another one for ourselves as well. So if you've never put your trust in Jesus, or if you've been a Christian for years, but you know there's one of those things that the Holy Spirit's just tapping you on the shoulder, there's something He wants to deal with, there's, there's something in your life that He wants to purge out of your body, which the Scripture now calls the temple of God. Will you take opportunity now and boldly and with faith go before the one who died for your sins and has promised you that if you come before him and confess and repent your sin, he will give you forgiveness. He will forgive you that he loves you, that we don't have to grovel, that the wrath of our sin has already been paid for in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, that we can go before him knowing that he loves us, knowing that he cares for us, knowing that we are forgiven. Will you give the Holy Spirit opportunity to work in your heart even right now? God, we come before you praying in the Spirit and at the prompting of your Holy Spirit and because of the access to you that has been provided by the sacrifice of your Son. And we plead your mercy and forgiveness on our lives, Lord. Father, will you yet again, Lord, make us white as the snow that is outside, Father. Father, May we take even the testimony and creation that's around us this very morning and we can see how, how darkness and, and dirt and mar and decay can be covered and blanketed and beautiful when that snow falls upon it. God, I pray that you would do that in your church this morning.
that you would cover us and cleanse us and heal us and forgive us. And I thank you, Father, for your grace. But I think of the people of Israel in that day and how from day to day they never really could have full assurance on their standing before you. And yet you would promise us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. What a gift that is. And Lord, maybe for some of us who have been walking with you and been part of the church for so many years of our life, it becomes so easy to take these things for granted. It becomes so easy to forget these things in a moment and to just assume the grace and gospel uh, that, that we see, that we know. But Lord, right now we pause before you and we just thank you, thank you, thank you that you have saved a wretch like me. And we We don't deserve it, but we desperately need it, and we worship you for it. And I pray, God, that out of that abundance that we might give, may we become, Lord, the rich giver who's giving out of our abundance, but not so much financial abundance. Lord, I'm I'm talking about the abundance of love that we have because we realize how much forgiveness you have given us. And so, Lord, may that cause us to give to others as well to be gracious, loving, kind people, an example of the grace and mercy of Jesus in our life to people who desperately need it outside of our lives, Father. And Lord, because of that, may you provide for your widow through this church. May you provide for the hungry. May you care for the lonely. May you love the isolated. May you correct, Lord, those who have been victims of bad theology and bad teaching and and bad people. Lord, may you use us this week as we send this team to Uganda. May you protect this team. But Lord, may you use this team to your glory that we might serve you and, and do work that brings you glory, not the Americans or the American church, Lord. But may the people in Uganda just love you more and more and more as they realize how abundant they really have it in you. And I pray, Lord, I pray for ministry in this valley. There are, there are way fewer people in the family of God in this valley than we tend to think. Lord, may you bring them to repentance and may you show us if any way possible, may you use us to do so. I pray, Lord, a special prayer upon everyone here as they're leaving this place in weather that's not ideal. Lord, I pray that you would would grant them mercy as they travel and safety. But I pray, Lord, that even these things might resonate in our hearts, that we might continue to turn to you and confess, Lord, that we might be good stewards of what you have given us. But more than anything, that we might understand your love for us and then in return grow in our love for you more and more and more. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen.